Chapter eighteen Part A of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eighteen The Marchesa Part A So Aaron dined with the Marchesa and Manfredi. He was quite startled when his hostess came in. She seemed like somebody else. She seemed like a demon, her hair on her brows, her terrible modern elegance. She wore a wonderful gown of thin blue velvet, of a lovely colour, with some kind of gauzy, gold-threaded filament down the sides. It was terribly modern, short, and showed her legs, and her shoulders, and breast, and all her beautiful white arms. Round her throat was a collar of dark blue sapphires. Her hair was done low, almost to the brows, and heavy, like an Aubrey Beardsley drawing. She was most carefully made up, yet with that touch of exaggeration, lips slightly too red, which was quite intentional, and which frightened Aaron. He thought her wonderful, and sinister. She affected him with a touch of horror. She sat down opposite him, and her beautifully shapen legs in frail, goldish stockings seemed to glisten metallic naked, thrust from out of the wonderful, wonderful skin, like periwinkle blue velvet. She had tapestry shoes, blue and gold, and almost one could see her toes, metallic naked. The gold-threaded gauze slipped at her side. Aaron could not help watching the naked-seeming arch of her foot. It was as if she were dusted with dark gold dust upon her marvellous nudity. She must have seen his face, seen that he was ebloui. "'You brought the flute?' she said in that toneless, melancholy, unstriving voice of hers. Her voice alone was the same, direct and bare and quiet. "'Yes. Perhaps I shall sing later on, if you'll accompany me, will you?' "'I thought you hated accompaniments.' "'Oh, no. Not just unison. I don't mean accompaniment. I mean unison. I don't know how it will be. But will you try?' "'Yes, I'll try.' Manfredi is just bringing the cocktails. Do you think you'd prefer orange in yours? I'll have mine as you have yours. I don't take orange in mine. Won't you smoke? The strange, naked, remote-seeming voice, and then the beautiful, firm limbs thrust out in that dress, and nakedly dusky, as with gold dust. Her beautiful woman's legs, slightly glistening, duskily. His one abiding instinct was to touch them, to kiss them. He had never known a woman to exercise such power over him. It was a bare, occult force, something he could not cope with. Manfredi came in with the little tray. He was still in uniform. "'Hello!' cried the little Italian. "'Glad to see you. Well, everything all right? Glad to hear it. How is the cocktail, Nan?' "'Yes,' she said. "'All right.' "'One drop too much peach, eh?' "'No.' All right. Ah, and the little officer seated himself, stretching his gaitered legs as if gaily. He had a curious smiling look on his face that Aaron thought also diabolical, and almost handsome. Suddenly the odd, laughing, satanic beauty of the little man was visible. "'Well, and what have you been doing with yourself?' said he. "'What did you do yesterday?' "'Yesterday?' said Aaron. "'I went to the Uffizi.' "'To the Uffizi? Well, and what did you think of it?' "'Very fine.' I think it is, I think it is. What pictures did you look at? I was with Decker. We looked at most, I believe. And what do you remember best? I remember Botticelli's Venus on the Shell. Yes, yes, said Manfredi. I like her. But I like the others better. You thought her a pretty woman, yes? No, not particularly pretty. But I like her body. 
and I like the fresh air, I like the fresh air, the summer sea air, all through it, through her as well. And her face? asked the Marchesa, with a slow ironic smile. Yes, she's a bit baby-faced, said Aaron. Trying to be more innocent than her own common sense will let her, said the Marchesa. I don't agree with you, Nan, said her husband. I think it is just that wistfulness and innocence which makes her the true Venus. The true modern Venus. She chooses not to know too much. And that is her attraction. Don't you agree, Aaron? Excuse me, but everybody speaks of you as Aaron. It seems to come naturally. Most people speak of me as Manfredi, too, because it is easier, perhaps, than Del Torre. So if you find it easier, use it. Do you mind that I call you Aaron? Not at all. I hate misters, always. Yes, so do I. I like one name only. The little officer seemed very winning and delightful to Aaron this evening, and Aaron began to like him extremely. But the dominating consciousness in the room was the woman's. "'Do you agree, Mr. Sisson?' said the Marchesa. "'Do you agree that the mock innocence and the sham wistfulness of Botticelli's Venus are her great charms?' "'I don't think she is at all charming as a person,' said Aaron. "'As a particular woman she makes no impression on me at all. But as a picture—' and the fresh air, particularly the fresh air. She doesn't seem so much a woman, you know, as the kind of outdoors morning feelings at the seaside. Quite. A sort of seascape of a woman, with a perfectly sham innocence. Are you as keen on innocence as Manfredi is? Innocence? said Aaron. It's the sort of thing I don't have much feeling about. "'Ah, I know you,' laughed the soldier, wickedly. "'You are the sort of man who wants to be Anthony to Cleopatra.' <laughs> Aaron winced as if struck. Then he too smiled, flattered. Yet he felt he had been struck. Did he want to be Anthony to Cleopatra? Without knowing, he was watching the Marchesa, and she was looking away, but knew he was watching her. And at last she turned her eyes to his with a slow dark smile, full of pain and fuller still of knowledge. A strange, dark, silent look of knowledge she gave him. From so far away, it seemed. And he felt all the bonds that held him melting away. His eyes remained fixed and gloomy, but with his mouth he smiled back at her. And he was terrified. He knew he was sulking towards her. Sulking towards her. And he was terrified. But at the back of his mind also he knew there was Lily, whom he might depend on and also he wanted to sink towards her. The flesh and blood of him simply melted out, in desire towards her. Cost what may, he must come to her. And yet he knew at the same time that, cost what may, he must keep the power to recover himself from her. He must have his cake and eat it. And she became Cleopatra to him. Age cannot wither, nor custom stale. To his instinctive, unwilled fancy she was Cleopatra. They went in to dinner, and he sat on her right hand. It was a smallish table with a very few daisy flowers, everything rather frail and sparse, the food the same, nothing very heavy, all rather exquisite. They drank hock, and he was aware of her beautiful arms and her bosom, her low, crowded, thick hair parted in the centre, the sapphires on her throat, the heavy rings on her fingers, and the paint on her lips, the fard, something deep, deep at the bottom of him hovered upon her, cleaved to her. Yet he was as if sightless, in a stupor. Who was she? What was she? 
He had lost all his grasp. Only he sat there with his face turned to hers, or to her, all the time. And she talked to him, but she never looked at him. Indeed she said little. It was the husband who talked. His manner towards Aaron was almost caressive, and Aaron liked it. The woman was silent mostly, and seemed remote, and Aaron felt his life ebb towards her. He felt the marvellousness, the rich beauty of her arms and breast, and the thought of her gold-dusted smooth limbs beneath the table made him feel almost an idiot. The second wine was a gold-coloured Moselle, very soft and rich and beautiful. She drank this with pleasure, as one who understands, and for dessert there was a dish of kachi, that orange-coloured pulpy Japanese fruit, persimmons. Aaron had never eaten these before soft almost slimy of a wonderful colour and of a flavour that had sunk from harsh astringency down to that first decay sweetness which is all autumn rich the marchese loved them and scooped them out with his spoon but she ate none aaron did not know what they talked about what was said if someone had taken his mind away altogether and left him with nothing but a body and a spinal consciousness it would have been the same but at coffee the talk turned to Manfredi's duties. He would not be free from the army for some time yet. On the morrow, for example, he had to be out and away before it was day. He said he hated it, and wanted to be a free man once more. But it seemed to Aaron he would be a very bored man once he was free. And then they drifted on to talk of the palazzo in which was their apartment. "'We've got such a fine terrace. You can see it from your house where you are,' said Manfredi. "'Have you noticed it?' "'No,' said Aaron.' near that tuft of palm-trees. Don't you know?" No, said Aaron. Let us go out and show it him, said the Marchesa. Manfredi fetched her a cloak, and they went through various doors, then up some steps. The terrace was broad and open. It looked straight across the river at the opposite Lungarno, and there was the thin-necked tower of the Palazzo Vecchio, and the great dome of the cathedral in the distance, in shadow bulk in the cold-aired night of stars. Little trams were running brilliant over the flat new bridge on the right, and from a garden just below rose a tuft of palm-trees. "'You see,' said the Marchesa, coming and standing close to Aaron, so that she just touched him, "'you can know the terrace just by these palm-trees, and you are in the Nardini just across there, are you?' "'On the top floor,' you said? "'Yes, the top floor. One of the middle windows, I think. One that is always open now.' and the others are shut. I have noticed it, not connecting it with you. Yes, my window is always open. She was leaning very slightly against him as he stood, and he knew with the same kind of inevitability with which he knew he would one day die, that he would be the lover of this woman, nay, that he was her lover already. Don't take cold, said Manfredi. She turned at once indoors. Aaron caught a faint whiff of perfume from the little orange trees in the tubs around the wall. "'Will you get the flute?' she said as they entered. "'And will you sing?' he answered. "'Play first, she said. He did as she wished. As the other night he went into the big music-room to play, and the stream of sound came out with the quick wild imperiousness of the pipe. It had an immediate effect upon her. She seemed to relax the peculiar drug-like tension which was upon her at all ordinary times. She seemed to go still and yielding. Her red mouth looked as if it might moan with relief. She sat with her chin dropped on her breast, 
and she did not move, but she sat softly, breathing rather quick, like one who has been hurt and is soothed. A certain womanly naturalness seemed to soften her. And the music of the flute came quick, rather brilliant, like a call-note, or like a long quick message, half-command. To her it was like a pure male voice, as a blackbird's when he calls, a pure male voice, not only calling, but telling her something, telling her something and soothing her soul to sleep. It was like the fire-music putting Brunhilde to sleep, but the pipe did not flicker and sink. It seemed to cause a natural relaxation in her soul, a peace. Perhaps it was more like waking to a sweet morning awakening, after a night of tormented, painful, tense sleep. Perhaps more like that. When Aaron came in, she looked at him with a gentle, fresh smile that seemed to make the fard on her face look like a curious tiredness, which now she might recover from. And as the last time, it was difficult for her to identify this man with the voice of the flute. It was rather difficult except that, perhaps, between his brows was something of a doubt, and in his bearing an aloofness that made her dread he might go away and not come back. She could see it in him that he might go away and not come back. She said nothing to him, only just smiled, and the look of knowledge in her eyes seemed for the moment to be contained in another look, a look of faith and at last happiness. Aaron's heart stood still. No, in her moment's mood of faith, and at last peace, life trust, he was perhaps more terrified of her than in her previous sinister elegance. His spirit started and shrank. What was she going to ask of him? "'I am so anxious that you should come to play one Saturday morning,' said Manfredi, "'with an accompaniment, you know. I should like so much to hear you with the piano accompaniment.' "'Very well,' said Aaron. "'Will you really come, and will you practice with me so that I can accompany you?' said Manfredi, eagerly. "'Yes, I will,' said Aaron. "'Oh, good! Oh, good! Look here. Come in on Friday morning, and let us both look through the music.' "'If Mr. Sisson plays for the public,' said the Marchesa, "'he must not do it for charity. He must have the proper fee.' "'No, I don't want it,' said Aaron. "'But you must earn money, mustn't you?' said she. "'I must,' said Aaron. "'But I can do it somewhere else.' "'No, if you play for the public, you must have your earnings.' When you play for me, it is different. Of course, said Manfredi. Every man must have his wage. I have mine from the Italian government. After a while, Aaron asked the Marchesa if she would sing. Shall I? she said. Yes, do. Then I will sing alone first, to let you see what you think of it. I shall be like Trilby. I won't say like Yvette Gilbert, because I daren't. So I will be like Trilby, and sing a little French song, though not Malbrook and without a Svengali to keep me in tune. She went near the door and stood with her hands by her side. There was something wistful, almost pathetic now, in her elegance. Derrière, chez mon père, vol, vol, mon coeur, vol. Derrière, chez mon père, il y a un pommier doux. Tout doux, et il, et il, tout doux. Il y a un pommier doux. Trois belles princesses. Vol, vol, mon coeur, vol. Trois belles princesses. Sont assis dessous. Tout doux, et you, et you. Tout doux. Sont assis dessous. 
She had a beautiful, strong, sweet voice, but it was faltering, stumbling, and sometimes it seemed to drop almost to speech. After three verses she faltered to an end, bitterly chagrined. No, she said, it's no good. I can't sing. And she dropped in her chair. A lovely little tune, said Aaron. Haven't you got the music? She rose, not answering, and found him a little book. What do the words mean? he asked her. She told him, and then he took his flute. "'You don't mind if I play it, do you?' he said. So he played the tune. It was so simple, and he seemed to catch the lilt and the timbre of her voice. "'Come and sing it while I play,' he said. "'I can't sing,' she said, shaking her head rather bitterly. "'But let us try,' said he, disappointed. "'I know I can't,' she said. But she rose. He remained sitting at the little table, the book propped up under the reading-lamp. She stood at a little distance, unhappy. I've always been like that, she said. I could never sing music unless I had a thing drilled into me, and then it wasn't singing any more. But Aaron wasn't heeding. His flute was at his mouth. He was watching her. He sounded the note, but she did not begin. She was twisting her handkerchief, so he played the melody alone. At the end of the verse he looked up at her again, and a half-mocking smile played in his eyes. Again he sounded the note, a challenge, and this time as at his bidding she began to sing. The flute instantly swung with a lovely soft firmness into the song, and she wavered only for a minute or two. Then her soul and her voice got free, and she sang. She sang as she wanted to sing, as she had always wanted to sing, without that awful scotch, that impediment inside her own soul, which prevented her. She sang free, with the flute gliding along with her, and oh, how beautiful it was for her! How beautiful it was to sing the little song in the sweetness of her own spirit! How sweet it was to move pure and unhampered at last in the music! The lovely ease and lilt of her own soul in its motion through the music! She wasn't aware of the flute. She didn't know there was anything except her own pure, lovely song-drift. Her soul seemed to breathe as a butterfly breathes, as it rests on a leaf and slowly breathes its wings. For the first time! For the first time her soul drew its own deep breath. All her life the breath had caught halfway, and now she breathed full, deep, to the deepest extent of her being. And oh, it was so wonderful! She was dazed. The song ended, she stood with a dazed happy face like one just coming awake, and the fard on her face seemed like the old night-crust, the bad sleep. New and luminous she looked out, and she looked at Aaron with a proud smile. "'Bravo, Nan! That was what you wanted,' said her husband. "'It was, wasn't it?' she said, turning a wondering, glowing face to him. His face looked strange and withered and gnome-like at the moment. She went and sat in her chair, quite silent, as if in a trance. The two men also sat quite still. And in the silence a little drama played itself between the three, of which they knew definitely nothing. But Manfredi knew that Aaron had done what he himself could never do for this woman. And yet the woman was his own woman, not Aaron's. And so he was displaced. Aaron, sitting there, glowed with a sort of triumph. He had performed a little miracle, and felt himself a little wonder-worker, to whom reverence was due. And as in a dream the woman sat, feeling what a joy it was to float and move like a swan in the high air, flying upon the wings of her own spirit. She was as a swan which never before could get its wings quite open 
and so which never could get up into the open, where alone it can sing. For swans and storks make their music only when they are high, high up in the air. Then they give sound to their strange spirits. And so she. End of chapter 18 Part A